Listen now to the Word of God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are, are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people." And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to t not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, 
it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So reads the Word of God. There's nothing that can awaken anger and argument in us quicker than being treated unfairly, quicker than being falsely accused. Children come with anti-unfairness software pre-installed From their earliest days, they can sniff it out from great distances. Then their preset alarm sounds. That's not fair! Some of the first words children ever speak. And this response barely changes no matter how old we get. Have you noticed that? We just can't abide unfairness. We can't endure it. It short circuits something in our brains that, that sends us straight back to childhood and that preset alarm. And our triggers, our triggers are so sensitive that we feel unfairly treated even if we actually did something wrong but didn't intend to. I'm sorry, sir, you were going 12 miles an hour over the speed limit. But officer, there was no one around, and I, I surely didn't mean to break the law. And all the while, inside our minds, we're just screaming, this isn't fair! So even when we're wrong, we have a hard time being treated in what feels like an unfair manner. I know not all of you are sports fans, but if you wanted to watch an international soccer match for just... A few minutes, you can see this exhibited. You'll see grown men doing it, absolutely abusing their opponent and then turning around and pleading innocence as though they've, they've never harmed anyone in their lives. Injustice. We just can't stomach it. And we're the ones that determines whether injustice has happened. It's not actual injustice. It's just if I feel unfairly treated. Well, these are kind of trite examples that I'm bringing to your mind this morning, but I'm bringing them to you for a reason. I want you to understand how deeply ingrained in us this instinct actually is, but I'm doing so in order to bring to your attention the natural inclinations that we experience as a backdrop for appreciating the response of the apostles in this passage to the grievous injustice that they experienced. And I also want to draw your attention from the start 
to the almost inexpressible trial that they were put through here. We can get used to this story. It's a familiar story from the book of Acts, from these early chapters. We can get so used to it that we forget that the apostles were were mere humans, just like us, just like you and me, that even though they were living in dramatic and unusual times and seeing unique manifestations of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church, they were no different than you and me with regard to enduring the unfairnesses of day-to-day life. So I think we need some really basic reminder as we go into this text to appreciate fully what we see here. This passage, and we'll point it out again several times, really resonates with one that came back in chapter 4. But there are several things that are stepped up this time around that we're supposed to note and supposed to see. So I think this might show us something of the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of mere mortals, this text. The power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of redeemed sinners. What the Spirit of God poured out on the church can actually do in people's lives. The changes that it makes when we receive the Spirit of God. So let's walk through this text in three steps. And you see them listed there in your bulletin. First of all, miraculous affirmations through the apostles. That's that opening paragraph that just gives a sense of what was going on in the apostles' witness. And then miraculous affirmations to the apostles because I believe it was no less miraculous what the Spirit of God was doing in them in their circumstances than what He was doing through them in the streets. And finally, we'll just talk a little bit about some takeaways from the apostles' experience in this text. So that's the outline we're going to follow this morning. I'll draw a slight attention to it as we move through it, but mostly as we move into a new set of verses, you will see that we're moving on to that next uh, step, that next insight. So miraculous affirmations through the apostles here in verses 12 12 through 16. Really, in answer to the apostles' prayer that's recorded back in verse 30 of chapter 4, where they were asking God, if you remember, we were talking about it at that time, they said, God, just make note of what these leaders are doing. Do with them whatever you want. We're not going to intercede for them to stop their persecutions or anything. Just, just God, make note of what they're doing and keep doing what you're doing in the streets. But enable us to be faithful to proclaim, to be courageous in our proclamation of the gospel. And we saw a bit of that as we moved through the vignette just now, with, with our, just last Sunday with Ananias and Sapphira. We saw the immediate answer to the prayer in chapter 4, verse 31. They were given that courage that they asked for. Now we're seeing more of what God is doing as verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5 are before our eyes. In answer to the apostles' prayer then, God is continuing to do what He was doing. The text opens many signs and wonders by the hands of the apostles here. He's affirming in dramatic ways that these men are continuing the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus said to them, you will do even greater works than I do. I think this is what He's talking about. These guys are in the streets just 
just healing everybody who comes. The ministry of Jesus is continuing on even after he's returned to the Father and given the Spirit to the early church and to these apostles. They're ministering in his name and proclaiming salvation through his death and resurrection and ascension as we see explicitly mentioned down in verses 30 and 31 here in this passage. And these were truly miraculous works that they were doing. And yet these miraculous works were accomplishing more than just the amazement of people. It wasn't just that they wanted people to marvel at the power of Jesus and at the power of the Spirit. More was going on than that. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, for instance, were still very much fresh in mind. And that, plus the great fear that generated, verse 5, verse 11 of this same chapter, that comes together, that flows together to give us verse 13 here. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So people weren't just flocking to them because now there was a seriousness to what was going on, but they were still highly regarded because what they were doing couldn't be duplicated by anyone else. People were aware that true, holy power was at work here. Nothing to trifle with. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. But the people were drawn to the dramatic blessing that was being poured out through the, the apostles into the lives of the sick. The undeniable indications that God was really at work through these apostles, they were drawn to that. Verse 15, they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Intriguing description, isn't it? Could sound odd to us. It almost sounds magic or like superstition. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. See, Luke chose a word here to talk about what was happening in terms of their connection with Peter that actually does remind us of the woman we sang about just a few moments ago who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed and was told, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's a similar kind of encounter. But Luke chooses a really interesting word to talk about it here. Peter's shadow. He used this word a couple of times already in his gospel. The first one, when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she would bear a son, she asked that question that we're familiar with, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And Luke records the words of the angel. The angel answered her, Luke 1, verse 35, the Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. That was the first time. Second was several chapters later in Luke 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Peter was talking there, suggesting that they erect three tabernacles to honor Jesus and Moses and Elijah. 
Verse 34 records, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The shadow that's being talked about here, I think, is not something magically attached to Peter. I think this is the very presence of God with his people. It's the same here, I believe, as in the other two texts. Peter's shadow was the means of God's blessing to these people. It was the presence of God blessing. Verse 16 says, The people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God is active, endorsing the work of these apostles on whom the church is being built. And even in the face of this holy fear that was upon the church because of the Ananias and Sapphira incident, the result was, verse 14, that more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, the text records. The church was growing in the midst of this. Miraculous affirmations through the apostles during these days. But that just wasn't okay with the religious leaders in Israel at the time. Move on into verses 17 through 42. That just wasn't okay with them. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy... They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Put in prison for bringing relief to suffering. Does that feel unjust? <laughs> we can read right past it. Oh, this is, this is just how the early church experienced life. No, folks, they were out healing people and proclaiming Jesus, and now they're in prison. No different for them in their day than for us in ours if this sort of thing were to happen. And if it sounds like deja vu, as I've mentioned already, there's good reason for that. The same thing happened in the same progression back in chapter 4. They were arrested for preaching Jesus, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. They were charged not to speak or teach in that name, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And when, then they responded by saying in 4.19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's 4.19 and 20. The same progression. The same exchange. This time, though, it wasn't just a single miracle that brought it about. The healing of a man more than 40 years old who'd been born lame. This time, one of the significant differences, even in the midst of the similarities, is there was an absolute cascade of, of miracles. It was a waterfall of blessing from God being poured out through the apostles. What had happened back there in chapter 4 was just being multiplied over and over again. As God puts His stamp of approval on the work of the apostles and on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. 
There's an outpouring of the blessing of God's Spirit just anticipating the day of resurrection and life in the new heavens and the new earth. What these people were being freed of is the manifestation of sin and fallenness among them. Now granted, this wasn't the ultimate day of resurrection, but it was surely drawing their attention. A God who can do this in the streets of Jerusalem can surely resurrect His faithful followers and bring them into His presence where they will no longer face the kind of struggles that were being represented here and healed here. This is a demonstration of the power of the God of our salvation to touch and heal physical bodies in manifestation of the very fact that Jesus pointed out when He was preaching Himself. Namely, He also has the authority to forgive sins. What you're seeing Him do here physically, He can do spiritually as well and reconcile fallen sinners back to Himself. He can take care of that problem as well can raise you from the physical infirmities that have marked your life from your earliest days or from more recent mishaps. But so much more important than that is the fact that He can reconcile you to God. He can remove that which stands between you and a perfect and loving Heavenly Father. And you can actually have hope of eternal life with Him free of all of this that is being cast aside through the ministry of the apostles on this day. But this wasn't what the religious leaders wanted. And it wasn't the only difference from the last time this progression had happened. Luke also then gives us a glimpse here into the leader's hearts and motives that he didn't give us last time. The text says here in verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. There's the basis of their motive for addressing what they were seeing in the streets. And when they heard the same answers from the apostles as before, verse 29 here is just a scaled down version of the same answer they gave back in chapter 4. When they heard the very same answer, we must obey God rather than men. Then on to verse 33, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Wanted to kill them for obeying God and for being the instruments through which the power of the gospel was being made known. The power and the promise of the gospel. These leaders were just really miffed that these guys weren't listening to them. And they were miffed, yes, but even more than that, I believe the charges that were coming back to them from the apostles is what put them in this place. You see that in verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're not listening to us. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's what they said. So they're hearing the message of the apostles. That's clearly what Peter and John and the others were saying to them. You guys are guilty of doing this. You're working against God. And you're holding us accountable for it because it's making you mad. It was maddening 
to the leaders. But it's not the leaders we're focusing on this morning. It's the apostles. And this fury from the religious leaders did not deter them. Again, they used almost the same words as before from chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Here, beginning in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, that is, as, as, as prince, as, as pioneer. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and as savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is your hope, Israel. You're going to oppose it? Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, the apostle said, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So putting this together, God himself is witness to these things by his spirit through his apostles. But the high priests and the Sadducees are standing against that. And that's what led to one final difference this time around from last time unfolding according to the same outline, but stepped up again, namely how they were released and what transpired here. But first, let's just remind ourselves of exactly what happened leading up to that. Remember, they were arrested and put into public prison, verse 18. Then verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You can't get more diametrically opposed commands, can you? Right? You know what the religious leaders are saying? Oh, don't preach or teach in this name any longer. Now the Spirit of God is letting them out of prison at night and saying, go back into the temple and say everything. All the words of this life. And they did that at dawn, verse 21, their earliest opportunity. So when the council was called together the next morning. They sent to the prison to have the apostles brought there, still in verse 21, and, and they weren't there. Verse 22. The prison was securely locked, and the guards were standing at the doors, but there was no one inside. They weren't guarding anybody. At a different time, this could have been funny. Apart from the circumstances that develop here, this, is, this would make a good comedy. You see the guard standing at the door, locked, no one inside. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. I'm sure they were. And then, to add insult to injury, verse 25, a nameless someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, and not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. It's kind of a reversal of roles here, wouldn't you say? Who's confident and assertive and who's fearful of death? So all this has taken place. Then comes their answer to the leaders that fired up all that rage. 
and their desire to do the same thing to these apostles as they had done to Jesus. But then is when a highly respected Pharisee, a man named Gamaliel, another introductory appearance of someone that we'll hear from again or hear about again later on, chapter 22 of Acts. This actually turns out to be the mentor of the Apostle Paul. This highly respected Pharisee Gamaliel reasons with the high priests and Sadducees in verses 35 to 39, trying to help them see that by using a couple of examples from history, that it might not be best to try to suppress this movement. In fact, verse 39, as we've already seen in different words, you might even be found opposing God. In the very next words, so they took his advice. The high priest and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees we're told here, listened to Gamaliel, heard the wisdom, evidently agreed with him, so they're going to release them, but how do they release them? What did they do next? Verse 40, they beat them. That's got to sit with us for a minute. Did you agree with Gamaliel or didn't you? Are these guys potentially of God or not? Are we going to let them go and see where this thing goes to discern whether they're on God's side? Evidently, yes, because the verse later, they let them go. But they beat them first. This is utterly irrational, utterly unjust, no basis for this action whatsoever. Those who look at this suggest that this beating that passes by in so few words was likely what the Mishnah describes as the 40 lashes minus one, the 39 stripes that are allowed by the, the Jewish law extrapolated from Old Testament text. It's anchored to, Del, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. It talks about 40 lashes being the limit. And because they didn't want to risk going over the limit, they did 40 minus 1 as a safeguard. So the disciples, the apostles likely received 39 stripes across their backs as they were being released as innocent. This is what they did to these guys who were healing people and who surely seemed to be working with God's power, demonstrated through the things that they were doing, it's not as though the high priest and Sadducees had produced a body of Jesus saying, you're preaching the resurrection, but, but he's still dead. No. He was raised, and he had walked the streets of this very city, and he had interacted with people. They're preaching the resurrection of a man who rose from the dead. 
in fulfillment of promise and all of the things that he said that this meant, all that their scriptures had looked forward to for the coming of such a one, how his life just intertwined with passages like Isaiah 52 and 53. And then, as a penalty for sin, rises again from the dead, teaches them about the kingdom of God, ascends back to the Father, and now just days later, just weeks later, this kind of opposition from the religious leaders to the point of beating the apostles who are preaching the truths of what had just happened in their own city, that has got to sink in. This is the calling of the believer in every generation. The majority of our brothers and sisters in the world, are, their experiences are much closer to Acts 5 than they are to what we enjoy here. I don't say that to guilt or shame the church here. I say it as a reminder. This isn't a passing scene. This isn't an unimportant encounter. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. You feel the opposition of the world around you. Do you feel it? Do you? That isn't a rhetorical question, but isn't it interesting that in comparison to what they're feeling, I'm actually blessed by the silence. Do we feel this? I don't know. We feel opposition, but you know what? We tend to think of it differently. We call it injustice. We want to stand on the Constitution of the United States and, and call out the injustice, the injustice. As though our highest calling is citizenship here, not citizenship elsewhere. Is it wrong to defend the Constitution of the United States? Absolutely not. It's a glorious, unprecedented document in the history of governance on this planet. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. And injustice hits us differently than it hits the world in which we live. Do we see it? Do we feel the opposition and the pushback? Oh, my friends, yes, we do. We see it everywhere. There's all sorts of attacks on the order and balance and beauty of what God has created in this world, fractured though it is because of sin. And our calling is to be salt and light in the midst of that. Our calling is to proclaim Jesus in the streets and see people turn to Him in saving faith. Just as our brothers and sisters were doing here in Jerusalem, at a bit different stage with a bit different resources available to them than the Lord is using today in the advance of the gospel. But the same God is behind both. And the God who did these things in their day can surely still do them in ours. That's not what we're aiming at, though, any more than they were. They wanted to be courageous in their proclamation while God did what God does. That's the same thing we need here now, today. Not to be distracted by the different manifestations of opposition we feel to the point where we're drawn into a battle about what's fair or unfair. But in the midst of that tension to be proclaiming actual reconciliation with God and Christ that has the promise of resolving all of this in the power of His name. The very name that they were preaching in their day. So that's what happened. They were beaten and then they were released. 
And then we see a new expression of the same response we saw from the apostles before. Just a new manifestation of it here in verse 41. It's pretty impressive. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in verse 42, and they kept right on preaching. We can be very impressed with, even envious of, what they experienced last time they were released. Of having the place where we're praying shaken. That's a pretty impressive description. And we can read past this and think, Wow, praise God. What's next? Let's move into chapter 6. But you know what? I think this is a stepped-up manifestation of the power of God as well. Just like people could be presented with the dichotomy in Jesus' day, what's harder to do, to, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? The clear impression was it's harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, because you can't fake that. But what Jesus is saying is it's actually harder to forgive sins. We can get caught in that same kind of dilemma here. We can read what happened back in chapter 4 and think, wow, can you imagine being in a prayer meeting where the presence of God is so palpable that the place shakes? But you know what, my friends? God can shake the earth anytime He wants to. He made it. It's His. He knows how to shake. He may shake the world. He can, he can flip with, the, with His finger the, the corner of some tectonic plate and shake a whole continent at once. That's just the power of our God. Is that really remarkable? Or is this response this time in the stepped-up exchange even more remarkable yet? I think it's an even greater expression of His power that He can so change, so redeem, so deeply satisfy still sinful human hearts that He can lift them above, lift them out of their, their selfish sensitivity toward unfairness. That's amazing! And I think you see that with me. He can prepare and enable them to suffer with Him in this life. Both that, that painful death to selfish desires and to yearnings in favor of His righteousness and holiness, but also the endurance of unfairness and of opposition in His name that comes at us from this world that's still so rebellious and so hostile toward its Creator. He can deliver us from those natural inclinations of our hearts to focus more on how this impacts me than on how it works for the kingdom of God. That's an amazing transformation, wouldn't you agree? It's a miracle well beyond the miracle of merely 
physical healings that we read about here or the miracle of shaking a place where the prayer meeting happens. He can transform human hearts and characterize them with the very life and righteousness of Jesus? This text is a portrait of unjust treatment. It's a, it's a case study in unfairness. The apostles weren't guilty of anything except making the wrong people mad. And there was just no legitimate reason for the response of those people toward the apostles. It was pure jealousy, identified so in the Word of God, but they were punished anyway. They were brutally beaten. And what was their response? It was joy. It was rejoicing. They felt honored to be dishonored for Jesus' name's sake, to be so identified with Him that they could actually suffer with Him. No whining self-defense, no bitter accusation, no claim of government overreach or retaliation in the courts. On different occasions, Jesus' messengers would call on their legal rights to avoid certain forms, expressions of persecution, but they still understood that suffering was their assignment in this life, and they embraced that calling in Christ. Paul, for instance, wrote to the Philippians that he would gladly endure the loss of every privilege, every benefit in this life, in order just to know Christ better. As he put it there in Philippians 3, to know Him and the power of His resurrection, to share His sufferings. Paul is longing to share the sufferings of Christ, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible He may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the very same sort of zeal the apostles are showing here. Even more than fairness, they wanted to identify with Christ no matter the cost. My friends, that is also our inheritance in the gospel. That is our inheritance. To be so freed from the sinful, selfish orientation of this life that we can actually embrace and welcome suffering because of what it does in us and how it prepares us for the life to come. How it causes us to identify with Jesus in His experience here and now in this life. We can be saved to the point where we long for that. Not in some twisted way wanting suffering, but when suffering comes as a result of our walking by faith in the true and living God, strengthened by His Spirit in our inner being to endure that well by His grace, for His glory, toward the ends for which He has appointed it, and in so doing, knowing Christ ever more deeply, the One who provided our salvation through His own suffering. That's what the Spirit of God can do in our lives. He can change us to the point where our most deeply embedded programming is transformed from 
intransigent selflessness into a follower of Jesus who dies daily to self-gratifying desires and lusts. It can change us from unswerving devotion to self-protection and self-promotion into one who joyfully embraces the sufferings of Christ in a world that so opposes who He is and all that He represents. It changes the things we value and treasure and talk about and pursue. It changes them all. It lifts us out of the traps of this world that ensnare us in things that are, are fleeting and ephemeral and unimportant. And it fixes our eyes on the beauty and power and perfection of our God and of His righteous Son and of His Holy Spirit. It changes us. Have you been changed today into one who loves Jesus more than comfort and ease in this life? one who embraces the suffering that faithful service can bring, celebrating the fact that you've been counted worthy of the name of Christ. It's amazing to see when that transformation takes place. And folks, to your encouragement, I see that transformation taking place among us. I was thinking about that this week. Evidences of change at Grace Church of DuPage. And you know what? I didn't have to go back more than a week. I didn't even have to go back farther than that. I could have gone back to yesterday in a very sweet welcome home party over in uh, the Klosses neighborhood. I could go back to several more things that happened midweek this week. But last Sunday, last Sunday, we had our flocks gathering. So first Sunday of the month, we don't have an evening service and I walk into the door of the home that's hosting our flocks group and there waiting for me is a pack of teenagers, high school students, who've been wrestling with a question that was awakened by the theological implications of last Sunday's sermon with regard to Ananias and Sapphira. And for the first 20 minutes that I was at that house, I couldn't leave the inside welcome mat as that dialogue continued and then branched off into new categories. They'd been arguing about it on their way over and wanted me to settle the argument. <laughs> but you know what? They're passionate about the truth. Enough to want to argue about it. And enough to want to stop the pastor before he's put his foot on the hardwood floor. To understand more deeply, more clearly how this works. I don't think I could come up with a better example than that. This is at work among us. This, this work of the Spirit in our hearts, causing us to understand our identity, who we are, where we are citizens of, and what that means for us in this day of great opposition to the gospel. And it's an absolute joy to step into that. Amen? It's fearful, isn't it? There's no faking it in this kind of walk with Jesus. 
We can't reproduce the life of the Spirit in us any better than we could reproduce the healings that Peter and the others were doing there in the temple area. But the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to. That's the finished work of Christ. And we trust in Christ by faith. We are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. And all of a sudden, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We grow. We stand strong. And we don't get thrown off the scent by the latest struggle or controversy that's happening in our nation. We just continue faithfully to proclaim and to model the powerful gospel of the true and living God expressed in a crucified, risen, ascended, and returning Savior. And that is our privilege right alongside our brothers and sisters in the book of Acts, right alongside our brothers and sisters around the world. Are you in? I'm in. What a glorious picture this is of what the church should look like and can look like by the glorious grace of God. Let's pray now together, shall we? Heavenly Father, accomplish your work in us, I pray, through the powerful Spirit of God whom you have given to us, through the finished work of Christ, and help us in our day, Lord God, I pray, help us in our day to walk in a manner worthy of you and to rejoice in that worthiness because it exalts Jesus who saved us. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.